Uh, so we continue our series through the book of Romans. Our series is titled, All Roads Lead to Romans, and we are in part four. Now, I sort of did a little brief sketch yesterday, and it looks like it's going to be overall a 10-part series, right? Finish up sometime mid-March. So you'll have to put up with me at least until then. And so we are here in Romans chapter 4, but now. And it might be well, since I've been away for a few weeks and you've had some Quintin has preached and you've had some other situation, Summer came and gave her amazing testimony, just to sort of remind ourselves of where we've come from, especially in the light of our last sermon that we did, which was titled, Not Even One, where we went from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to 319. And I just sort of bullet point summarized here the basic essence of that sermon, the major points of that sermon, and this will just be extremely helpful for those of us that have been following along with the series to sort of keep continuity, but it'll also be helpful to those of you who are just sort of dipping in today for the the season, the holiday season, and, and you're here as a visitor. So in that passage, we, or in that section, in that sermon titled Not Even One, we noticed several things. First of all, as the passage opens up, we found ourselves in a courtroom scene, right? There is a judgment that is going on, and we are, as it were, listening in, even though as the story unfolds, we find that we ourselves are, are implicated in the judgment. The second thing is that Paul goes through this catalog of sins in both the Jewish and the Gentile world. And he basically summarizes that catalog of sins into two basic ideas, immorality and idolatry from which immorality flows. And he says three times that the truth was exchanged, exchanged, exchanged for this incorrect idea of who God is, idolatry, and who we are, immorality. Uh, What then sort of, there was a little trap you might remember that Paul had laid where he cataloged these sins and then he anticipated the feeling of sort of a moral revulsion or a moral repugnancy. And at just the moment as the trap was laid for us, he says, who are you who judges another? And this introduced us to this idea of what I call moral superiority complex, where we look down upon others because they sin differently from us, or maybe they sin the same as us, but they sin less than us in our own estimation. And so this idea of moral superiority complex, Paul is writing into a mindset here in the church in Rome where people were creating divisions, looking down on others because of perhaps their ethnicity, perhaps because of their familiarity or lack thereof with Torah. We'll talk more about that today. So Paul basically concludes this sort of catalog section here at the end of Roman, or sort of the middle part of Romans chapter 3, and his summary is that all of humanity is in the dock or on trial before God. Now, the problem with that, and I think we all would recognize the universality of human failure and of human folly, one of the problems that Paul sort of introduces this, we might call this a problem within a problem is that implicated within the universality of human sinfulness is Israel as well. And Paul makes this point very importantly, it's going to come up for us again today, that Israel is not somehow screened or filtered from the condemnation of Torah. They themselves have not lived up to the light, they have not lived up to their commission, and so now you have a kind of double problem. Not only the sin problem, but the fact that Israel, which was supposed to be the descendants of Abraham, this will become important for us today, but especially next time we're together, that they were supposed to be in some significant sense a light to the world. Well, what do you do when those that were supposed to be the light to the world are themselves darkness? Or you might remember the language of our sermon, what do you do when those that are supposed to be healing the disease have themselves become infected? 
And so Israel's unfaithfulness actually compounds the problem. And so then finally, God's judgment will be fair, it will be impartial, it will be just, and this is a tricky one for many. This is a hurdle that's a a bit difficult for some to get their minds around. God's judgment will actually be good news, a part of the good news message. And, And just a brief word on that, we mentioned this the last time we were together, but I know we have a lot of visitors at least one sense in which God's fair, impartial, and just judgment is good news is that in the whole of human history, if you think of the many millions and billions of people that have existed in the whole of human history, a very high percentage, I think you could make a strong case, a majority of the people that have existed in human history have been victims of oppression and of injustice. And so God is going to set right the injustice of the rulers of this world. And so that's basically uh, sort of orienting ourselves to where we've come from. And these were the last three slides from that sermon. The last three slides, they're going to launch us perfectly into our presentation today, um, which is, I think you're going to really love. I'm excited about it. So quoting from uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright in his commentary on the book of Romans, he says, Israel's untrustworthiness or their unfaithfulness to their commission to be the light of the world, Israel's untrustworthiness does not abolish God's trustworthiness. I wonder if somebody could say amen to that. It merely sharpens up the question, what will God do now? When we leave Romans chapter 3, when we get to the end of verse 19, uh, verse 20 even, we we have this sort of sense. In fact, maybe if you're there, you can just sort of take a look at that. Romans chapter 3, we're sort of left hanging And uh, we're going to see that Paul has purposefully created literary space here because where he goes in the very next phrase is absolutely incredible. So we'll just read it here, verses 19 and 20. By way of summary, Paul says, Now we know that whatever Torah says, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the Torah, under the law, that every mouth, Jew and Gentile, may be stopped, and that all the world may become guilty before God. This is what we meant when we said that all the world is in the dock. Verse 20, therefore, here's the grand conclusion of Paul's indictment against both Jewish and Gentile humanity. Therefore, by the deeds of Torah, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Presenting a seemingly hopeless situation And Wright's point is a good one. It's not just that the world has been unfaithful. The problem within the problem is that Israel, God's ostensible solution to the problem, his call of Abraham, the fact that they were supposed to be a light to the world, they themselves are implicated in the disease. They're implicated in the darkness. They're implicated in the sin. And so Wright asks the very question that Paul has set up, what will God do now? And we ended with this slide. What indeed? What indeed? And today... We will spend all of our time in 11 verses, just 11 verses today, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. We're going to read it through here all the way through, sort of a helicopter view to give us a feel for the shape of the whole thing. But I want you to notice right at the outset, with with a kind of flourish of trumpets, just imagine in your mind's eye a flourish of trumpets or even a drum roll or some sort of pregnant pause that brings about these two words. And you notice these two words right at the beginning of verse 21. But now. Both of these words are immensely, they are immensely significant and they are pregnant with meaning. Let's just take each of them in their, in their course. Our sermon today is titled, But Now. 
So Paul has crafted this very carefully structured, nuanced indictment of all of humanity, including not only Gentile humanity, pagan morally superior complex, but also Jewish morality. All have sinned, he will say, and fallen short of the glory of God. And then here comes this interruption, this this interpolation. Here comes this interposition of just two words, but now. But now, there is an interruption in the course of human history. There is an interruption in space-time, but now. But now. The word but is an important word. Of course, in the English language, it functions as a conjunction. Not unlike the word and in the sense that it's a conjunction, but very unlike the word and in that it indicates a change or return of direction. If you have, and I think I've used this example here before, but it will bear repeating If you have applied for a job and you've sent in your resume and you went in for an interview and you thought the interview went really well, swimmingly well, in fact, if two or three or four days later you get a letter in the mail that says, thank you, sir, thank you, madam, so much for applying for the job. It was a pleasure to meet you the other day. And goes through these, you know, sort of formalities, these niceties. If you then see the word, but, do you need to read the rest of the letter? Did you get the job? You didn't get the job because the word but doesn't function just in in the sense of and where it's a conjunction that keeps the same direction. I'll have the soup and the salad, ma'am, right? No, 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 no. I'll have the soup, but as soon as you say but, there's a qualifier. There's a, oh, there's there's a change. There's a turn. Thank you for coming in and applying for the job, but, but, now this is a total reversal, of course, a total grammatical reversal. And so what Paul has done here, again, just imagine this with a giant drum roll or the flourish of trumpets. All of humanity, as we've just read the last two verses, they're sort of hanging on verses 19 and 20. All the world has become guilty before God. And then these two words, but now, but now, something new, something different a change of course, and not just a grammatical or a lexical change of course. This is a change of course, listen to me carefully now, for the whole of human history, according to Paul, and I'm inclined to agree. But now, now what's interesting, I'm just going to give you a a brief trailer version of what you can expect to see in the movie that will follow, and we're going to read it right through. But now, there's no mistaking what the but now is, the change of direction, the the interposition of God's presence into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. We'll get to that. There's just no question because he says it one, two, three, four times what the but now is. He says in verse 20, uh, chapter three, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God. Verse 22, but now the righteousness of God. Verse 25, his righteousness. Verse 26, his righteousness. Obviously, as contrasted with the failure and the folly of human righteousness. Gentile righteousness has failed. Gentile efforts have failed. They have plunged hopelessly and helplessly into immorality immorality and idolatry. Even Jewish righteousness has failed. Jewish faithfulness has failed. All humanity has failed. All humanity is in the dock. And again, it's a problem within a problem. Not just the universality of the human condition, but the fact that Israel was supposed to be a part of the solution, and now they're actually a part of the problem. They're implicated with the disease themselves. What will God do? But now, God lands in human history, literally, literally. And that's the very thing we celebrate at this season. 
right? Traditionally, in Christian communities, as you come to the end of December, not that this is tied to any particular biblical text, but, but traditionally we say, hey, Jesus is the reason for the season. He be, God landed literally, bodily, actually in human history. And Paul makes his point, but now the righteousness of God has showed up. Not the righteousness of humanity with all of its follies and failures. The righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. Thank you. Whatever Paul is going to say here, clearly God's righteousness is at the center. Okay? With that in mind, as we read these 11 verses through, let's make every effort in our time together today to follow his actual flow of thought, and let's see if we can follow his argument carefully. Rather than just listening to what Pastor Ashrick has to say or, or in some other sermonic context, what the pastor has to say, let's see if we can figure out what Paul was trying to say. What's the but now? What's the thing that demanded that literary flourish, that, that interruption into the whole flow of human history? Let's see if we can follow Paul's train of thought. So join me, if you would, in chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. I'd love to see all the heads looking down at their own Bibles. Don't look at me. Look at your own Bibles. Pull out your phone. Pull out your Bible. If you don't have one, look on with your neighbor. I'm tempted to give a little lecture here, become professorial, and give you a little lecture if you've managed to show up to the Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church without your Bible. That would be a giant no-no. There might be other churches you can go to without your Bible. This is not one of them. Well, you can come here without your Bible, but not responsibly. And just maybe I will give you a little lecture. If you come to this church without your Bible, all you're going to be able to say is, that was a fine sermon, or I suppose, that was a terrible sermon and I didn't like it. But what you will not be able to say is, I better understand the text because I saw it with my own eyes and I understood it with my own ability. So I'm going to encourage you again. I'm going to give you a chance because I didn't see many heads go down there. I didn't, see, I didn't get any sense that people were ready to start reading. Romans chapter 3, I'm in verse 21. What verse am I in, everyone? 21. Say, oh, man, he's a little fired up, a little fired up. But now the righteousness of God... Apart from the law is revealed. We're just flying over the top. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his patient forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he God only of the Jews? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Last verse of the chapter. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. This is unquestionably one of the densest, some would say 
most complicated passages in the whole of Romans. I don't deny that. But listen to me carefully. The reason that it's a little dense and the reason that it's a little complicated is not because Paul is purposefully trying to impress you with his intellect, certainly not. And it's also not because the argument is particularly difficult. The reason that it feels at this stage in the book of Romans that it, this, wow, this is a lot. I'm not really even a theologian. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to understand, you know, a tenth of what you've just read there, David. The reason is this. Paul is here summarizing in brief ideas and themes and threads that he will pick up in chapter 4, in chapter 5, in chapter 7, in chapter 8, in chapter 9, 10, and 11, and in chapter 12 and beyond. So what we're going to kind of have to do here is hold our conclusions in Romans 3, 21 to 31 with an open hand. Right? We don't want to, we don't want to bear down too strongly Today, there will be a couple points we will be able to really class, but for the most part, Paul is here going to introduce us to ideas, the what of the story. He will later tell us about the how of the story and the actual, what we might say, the mechanics. Uh, by way of analogy, it might not be a perfect analogy, it's just coming to me right now on the spot. Uh, we're introduced to the car and the basics of the car. Here's the steering wheel, here's the gas, here's the shifter. And so today we're going to get a feel, an overall feel, but if, if, if we lifted up the hood, there is tremendous complexity in there. And Paul is just giving us a quick snapshot. It might feel a little convoluted, but as we walk through it, not just the helicopter view over the top, I think you'll be like, Wow. Wow, I didn't give myself much hope of understanding that, but it actually, it actually makes really good sense. The first step in sort of trying to get our fingers wrapped around it is we're actually going to read the first part of it through again, 21 to 26, but not in my preferred translation, which I've just read from here, which is the New King James translation. It's a great translation. I generally love it, and it's actually quite good in much of Romans, but there are several things that it does in Paul's use of, of particular phrases and particular words and verbs that actually obfuscate the meaning, make it trickier to understand. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read from a translation of a very good, very careful translation from the Greek by a New Testament theologian by the name of Sigve Tonstad. Same passage, we're not going to read all of it, we're just going to read 21 to 26. And you'll pick up on several things that are different. One of them I want you to notice, and I'll just be, I'm, I'm going to be very disciplined here and not go too deep. I sometimes have a tendency to put the plow a little too deep. I'm not going to do that. I'm only going to say this. Notice that the, the phrase that is usually translated or was translated in the New King James as faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus is going to be rendered by Tonstad, by the way, and many others that understand and translate these verses as the faithfulness of Jesus you want to be a little technical here, it's the transition from the objective genitive, my faith in the object, to the subjective genitive, the actual subject's faith or faithfulness. And you'll see, it literally is a, it's a, it's a Copernican transition. It's a giant tectonic transition. So we're going to read back through it again, and I think you get a feel for the shape of the text a little better. Then we're going to go down and walk through each verse. But now apart from the law, the right making of God has been disclosed witnessed by the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the right-making of God through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah to all who believe. For there is no difference. All have missed the mark and lack the glory of God. They have been set right freely by His grace through the liberation which is in Jesus the Messiah. Oh, I love that language. God set Him forth publicly as a means of reconciliation through the faithfulness of his bloody death. God did this in order to show his right-making 
in view of the fact that he had passed over the sins previously committed in his forbearance. That is, in order to demonstrate his right-making at the present time, that God, he, may be right in the very act of setting the one right who lives on the basis of the faithfulness of Jesus. Dense. I get it. Not easy to understand on the first pass or even the second pass. But now we're going to land that helicopter down at the edge of the woods. We're going to walk through the woods. And dare I say it, that even those among you who are not particularly theologically inclined and maybe not even terrifically biblically literate, you're going to come away with the basic story. In fact, I've made this sermon. I I went back and listened to the first three parts in the series, and I thought, you need to simplify some things. Simplify that a little bit. Simplify that a little bit. And so I've made two efforts here to make it so simple that everybody will be able to get it, okay? So there'll be a complex level, and there'll be a little more simple level, and wherever you find yourself, I think you're going to really enjoy it. So clearly here, let's just sort of, what did we see when we were in the helicopter? We flew over it twice. Some of you might be feeling like, well, I don't know if I saw anything. That's a tough passage of Scripture. Well, I think what we can say just as a first observation is that clearly there's a story here. Clearly we're, we're dipping into a narrative, to a, to a story, and, and the story, very importantly, goes back all the way to Genesis, back to Adam, which we'll pick up in Romans 5, back to Abraham, which we'll pick up in Romans 4, and back to Israel. So, so we are, as it were, coming into the movie here, and it's, a, say, a three-hour movie, and we are, we're just dipping in for a very important 20-minute scene, okay? So we're, gonna, we're not going to be able to do all of that. Obviously, the 10-part series is going to be the whole three-hour movie uh, by way of analogy, but we're just going to remind ourselves of the fact that Paul, Very often, in fact, like every other New Testament and Old Testament writer, and I can't emphasize this strongly enough, I was just in America doing our fifth or sixth Arise Intensive, an absolutely incredible experience, 320 young people there, it was amazing, it was in the the mountains of the Sierra Nevadas, incredible. And when we do these Arise Intensives, myself and Ty Gibson and the others that join us, we just are trying to drive home the point over and over again that the Bible is a story. The Bible is a narrative. It's not just a list of rules or a list of, you know, moral virtues or or prophecies or what. No, 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 no. It's a story that contains moral virtues and proverbs and prophecies. There's a story that's unfolding. Now, listen to me because I've said this in this church before, but some of you maybe have never heard this before. The entire story, the whole story that the the entirety of Scripture is telling is contained embryonically in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Everything thematically that will emerge in the whole of Scripture is found in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. In fact, it, it, it's, it's kind of a funny way to think about Scripture, but it's an incredibly insightful way. Everything from Genesis chapter 4, right, which is just three chapters into the New Testament, or the Old Testament, everything from Genesis 4, all the way through the Old Testament, and then all the way through to the book, to the book of Revelation at the end of the Old Testament, is in some sense merely commenting on or building on what's taking place in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Did you get that? Genesis 4 to Revelation 22 is largely commenting on the themes found in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Themes of creation, themes of covenant, and themes of conflict. So so Paul is writing here, and he's writing about a story, and he assumes 
at least a basic familiarity with the story. I stand up here on Saturday morning assuming, in the case of many of you, at least a basic familiarity of the story, but I don't want to assume too much. Some of you are just fresh to this. You're just learning. It's exciting. So, so the story of Adam, you might be familiar with that, Adam and Eve. You might know a little bit about the story of Abraham, perhaps the story of, of Israel, but we've already seen Paul do this. Back in Romans chapter 1, we noted that Paul was purposefully tapping into the very language of Genesis, the creation of the world, the illusion of being wise, which was the temptation of the serpent, exchanging the glory of God for reptiles, another illusion to the serpent. They believed the lie, which is a reference to Genesis 3. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's Genesis 3. The departure from Eden's sexual ideal, which was monogamous and lifelong and heterosexual. Death being the sure result and God's wrath being a part of the good news. God comes down in Genesis 3 to announce that a way of escape has been made. Paul writes, and there's never a moment where he doesn't have Genesis 1, 2, or 3 in mind. Okay? So too here. Now, here we go. Here's my attempt at simplifying. You ready? The punchline of the story, according to what we've just read in Romans chapter 3, is that God's righteousness has been demonstrated by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, particularly by his bloody death. Okay, I want you to raise your hand if you understand, just get, if you get the summary. Raise your hand if you get the summary, okay? Not enough hands going up. Okay, here's the short version, okay? Let's try this one. God has now done what he had said all along he would do. Okay, if you raise, under, raise your hand if you understand that. Yeah, I got that. Okay, so God said he was going to do something and then he did it. Okay, now you're coming down to my level. Oh, you want a shorter version? Okay, I can do that. God has done what he said he would do. How are we doing now? Any hands going up there? Okay, okay, all right. No, 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 I need it to be even shorter. Okay, Jesus. All right, can, any, how many people can understand that? Okay, so there's about four levels of complexity. There's a really cool series on YouTube, and sometimes you can just get absorbed into the vortex of YouTube. You know, just all of a sudden, an hour's gone by, or two hours has gone by. There's a really cool series that I think is done by Wired Magazine. And uh, what they do is they basically take an idea and they explain it at five levels of complexity. So one of them is music explained at five levels of complexity, from a little child all the way up to a, a, a theoretical, uh, you know, people that understand deeply the theory of music. Right? They, do, they do this series, different ideas at levels of complexity. So I just gave you five levels of complexity, right down to the most simple, Jesus. So far, so good? Yes. Now, let's walk through that first verse. Let's go through that verse first. Let's walk through the trees. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the Torah, I'm going to purposely use the word Torah here instead of just law, is revealed being witnessed by the Torah and the prophets. Now, the first thing I want you to notice, and I've put... Romans chapter 1, verse 17, up on the screen here, just for those of you that are remembering, hey, that sounds very similar to Paul's advance summary statement in Romans chapter 1 of everything he's going to say. Look at the similarities here. I've highlighted them for you so you can't miss it. First of all, Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God, that's what the whole story is about, uh, apart from the law, is revealed, disclosed, demonstrated, okay, by the Old Testament. That's basically what he's saying. Now notice Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in it, this was his advanced summary statement, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God, there's our phrase, is revealed, there's the idea, from God's faithfulness to our answering faithfulness as it is written, and then he quotes from the Old Testament. Okay, I just have to say this. 
People sometimes say things to me like, how can you believe the Bible? It's a dusty old book, you know. You know, you could believe, you could put your faith in anything. When I first became a follower of Jesus in my early 20s, many of my punk rock friends and others would be like, ah, you can't believe that book. It's, it's unbelievable. It tells all these fantastical stories. You know, you should believe some other religion. Why would you believe this religion? All I'm going to say is this. The greatest proof... And there are many proofs. We could talk about the archaeological proof. We could talk about the scientific proof. We could talk about the teleological proof. We could talk about the existential proof. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get all that. But the greatest proof, listen to me carefully here, the greatest proof of the veracity and the authenticity of Scripture is Scripture itself. When you start reading it, when you start studying it, it literally comes alive and I mean literally, because the Holy Spirit who inspired the Word now becomes the Spirit that instructs in the Word. And I tell you, it's better than any Marvel movie. It's better than any movie full stop. It's better than any sports program. And I enjoy my sports programs. But trust me on this. You have to make room in your life for Scripture. You don't have to put the plow down as deep as I've gone here. You don't have to put the plow down as deep as the theologian. But at some level, make room in your life for Scripture, and you won't have to have some pastor or some preacher or some parent tell you that the Bible is God's Word. God himself, through his Spirit, will say to you, you're my son, you're my daughter, and this Word is true. Make room in your life, in your situation, with your personality and your timetable. Make room room for scripture. Make room for what did I say, everyone? Scripture. So you begin to see these ties and these correlations and these consistencies, and you think, this isn't an ordinary document. This isn't, this isn't a document that was crafted by the wisdom or the cleverness or the scheming of men. We've already noted, and I just throw this slide up. We've already been over this slide, but this is Romans 1, 16 and 17, that advanced summary but I throw it up just so you can remember if you had perhaps forgotten, and this will become important for us next week. This idea of faith. Faith was right at the heart of what we just read there in, in Romans 1.17. And that word faith, you'll notice there in the first B, for everyone who believes, the Greek word there, and I don't do this very often. Those that, that are here in my local church, they know I don't regularly quote the Greek. I'll just do it a couple times today. But that word pistuo is an important word. Jump down to the second B, from faithfulness for faithfulness. It's the root word pistis, which means faith or belief or loyalty or trust. And then finally, the righteousness will live by my faithfulness, pistis. This word, pistis, faith, loyalty, trust, faithfulness is a hugely significant word. We already talked briefly about how when we just orient the word pistis from my faith in the object, faith in Jesus... To the subject's faith or faithfulness, now the, everything takes on a totally different light. Saving faith doesn't reside in me. Saving faithfulness resides in God. And that's the story that Paul is telling. We'll pick this up big time next week when we talk about Abraham. So now Paul is walking a fine line here. If you're paying attention, he says something in verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God is revealed apart from Torah even though it's witnessed by Torah. Ah, yeah, he's being very careful here. He's walking a line in which he's basically letting us know there is a correct way to use the law, Torah, and there's an incorrect use. He says this expressly in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, but we know that the law is good, and I've underlined the word here, if one uses it lawfully. 
So the law is not good full stop. There is a misuse of the law. Water, by way of illustration, is very good. Water is good. It's good for me right now. Water is good, but you can drown people in water. You can throw water in somebody's face. Now, that might sometimes be appropriate. It's never appropriate to drown someone in water, right? So, so Paul's point is this. Torah is good. The Old Testament is good as long as you're reading it right. Oh, and right at this point, I've got to say, a lot of well-meaning, beautiful Christian people, I'm not, denouding, I'm not doubting or denying the integrity or the sincerity of your spiritual experience. I'm not. But I'll be straight up with you here. A lot of well-meaning Christian people don't know how to read the Bible. They just don't know how to read it. They're afraid of it. They're intimidated by it. Their parents or, peer, or their sort of seniors might have used the Bible in such a way that it made them afraid. It made them feel constrained. It made them feel, Paul says, look, the Old Testament's great. The law is great. Torah is great, as long as you're using it right. He says it expressly in the New Living Translation a little more clearly. We know that the law is good when it's used correctly. When it's used what? And I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I'm 100% sure there are people in this room who could say, the Bible and other inspired writings and religion itself was used in a way that was ultimately harmful to me in my religious journey. I see the heads nodding. You don't have to put your hands up because I know it's true. People misuse religion. Religion becomes one of the best places to hide from God, and it becomes one of the best places to manipulate people from a power construct. But I want to tell you, God's not doing that. He doesn't want you to, to extract out of context or to do violence to the text. We need to learn how to read the text, and that's Paul's point. Now we're in verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. That's the end of verse 22, and I'll just give you a little lesson here on how to read the Bible. I just put it up here for you. Just what does this last phrase mean? For there is no difference. My suspicion is many of us in this room, tempted to careless reading, tempted to non-contextual reading, would read that and say, well, the righteousness of God through faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Well, we wouldn't read the next verse, which says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So let me ask a question here by a raising of hand. What does Paul mean when he says there is no difference? No. Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile. See, what Paul is doing, remember, he's writing into a church that has some split of Jewish-Gentile connection. In fact, I think I might have that. I've got, I've got it right here. It's great. It's, it's, like I, it's almost like I put these slides together myself. Paul is building toward a very important pastoral point here. Paul did not set out to write a book that would get published by some publisher. He's writing a letter into a situation. What is the point that Paul is driving at? God does not have two families but one. Now, we've already mentioned this briefly. This is, hit, this is review for some of you. In the late 40s, likely AD 49, Claudius, Emperor Claudius, expelled all the Jews from Rome, reportedly because of rioting and disturbances. After the death of Claudius in AD 54, Nero rescinded the decree that banned the Jews and permitted the Jews to return to Rome. Okay, so what happened was that church that had formerly been a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, when all the Jews, including the Jewish Christians, were expelled, then the church was a singularly and uniquely Gentile church for about six years, five or six years. When all the Jews came back, do you think that would have been a recipe for some 
for some hostility, for some conflict, and for some division? Clearly it was. And that's what we're reading here in Romans. Paul is writing, among other things, into that situation to try and help them to navigate God has a way with Jews and God has a way with Gentiles. And his point here is an incredible point. He says, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. By the way, that language, fallen short of the glory of God, that's the language, losing the glory of God is the language of Eden. It's the language of Genesis 3. When they lost their, their clothing, whatever that clothing was that they possessed, some sort of supernatural clothing they must have possessed because it says they, they were naked and they weren't really ashamed or aware of it at the end of chapter 2. And then in 3, it says as soon as they ate, they knew they were naked. They lost the glory of God. So Paul, again, he always has Romans 3, 1, 2, and 3 in mind, and Wright is exactly correct when he says this historical sequence of the expulsion of the Jews from Rome and then the reinvitation back by Nero fits the situation into which Romans fits like a glove. Ah, sometimes people will say crazy things like, well, how do you know when the Bible was written? Maybe it was written many years after it professes to be. Listen, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. There are so many internal evidences to the veracity and the historicity of Scripture that you have plenty of good reason to believe the text if you will just put your mind into it and build again your life around, at least at some level, Scripture. Make room for Scripture. Make room for God in your life. So I love what Tonstad says here about Romans 3.23, which is a verse that many of us have heard well. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Tonstad makes this incredible point. The lack and need in view that we've lost the glory of God extends to a defective perception and not only to flawed performance. I'm about 100% sure that everybody in this room or a high percentage of people in this room, whenever they have heard or had quoted to them or maybe they themselves have read for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, they have thought in terms of personal performance. I have failed. I have made mistakes. I have been unkind. I have said things I wish I wouldn't have said, done things I wish I wouldn't have done. Tonsad makes a great point here. From Paul's perspective, falling short of the glory of God is not just that you failed. By the way, God knew that. As we talked about the last time we were together, God had a solution to your failures before you even had failures. So God's not surprised by your hypocrisy. He's not surprised by your failures. He's not surprised by your lust. He's not surprised by your bad attitude. He knows all that stuff. The falling short of the glory of God is not just that you have not performed up to snuff. It's that you don't perceive God accurately. I got good news for you, though. Jesus is going to show up, and he's going to show us who God is. What did he himself say? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Our next verse. Woo, we're moving through it now. 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Just brief comments here because this is a very dense verse. First of all, declared in the right. That's a status. Freely. That's a gift. Through redemption, that's a freedom in Jesus the Messiah. That's the location. I want to say something to you right now that could be a game changer. The location of your freedom, the location of your redemption, I'll make it even easier. The location of your salvation is in Jesus. Your salvation is not located in you. That's a very unsafe place for your salvation to be located. Your salvation is located in the holy history of the man, Jesus Christ. Turn to the person next to you and say, your redemption is located in Christ Jesus. Say that. Turn to the person on both sides of you and say, your redemption is located 
in Christ Jesus. That's the point that Paul is driving at here. Now we're in verse 25. Look at this. We're moving along now. God put forth Jesus. Oh, this is big. This is big. Most translations say some really difficult word that nobody ever uses, propitiation, okay? The word literally means the mercy seat or the place of mercy. God set Jesus forth as the place of mercy through faithfulness, again, his faithfulness, by means of his blood. He did this to demonstrate his covenant justice, this translation says, his righteousness because of the passing over in divine patience and forbearance of the sins that were committed beforehand. Okay. Paul here has got the straw planted deeply in the Old Testament, and he is drawing deeply on the Old Testament, particularly on the sanctuary and on the covenant made with Abraham and his descendants. Abraham will talk about next week just a word about the sanctuary. Raise your hand if you know what this is. Just raise your hand if you have any idea what that. Nice and high so I can get a sense here. Okay. What is that? Tell me what that is. That's the Ark of the Covenant. What was inside of that box? Very good, the Ten Commandments. Does anybody know what the lid of the box was called? It was called the mercy seat. Okay, now I'm not going to go deep here into Leviticus 16 and Day of Atonement theology, but I'm going to say this. And for those of you that are Seventh-day Adventists, you want to really perk up your ears. You don't have to be to get this point, but this is a big point, very big point. Paul here, when he speaks of God setting forth Jesus as the mercy seat is speaking directly into Leviticus 16, directly into Day of Atonement theology, and here's the incredible point. On the 10th day of the 7th month, in ancient Israel, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the most holy place of the sanctuary, and he would put blood on the mercy seat, and a cloud of glory filled the whole sanctuary. The presence of God was on the mercy seat. That cloud of glory would then fill the whole sanctuary, and the priest would, as it were, literally be chased out of the temple by the glory, of God, by the smoke. It was just, God's presence just pushed all of the sin and all of the uncleanness, and the priest right along with it just shoved him right out. Now, this is the coolest point. Even if you don't get all the theology, get this point. You know what Paul says? The mercy seat in the Old Testament for the Jews was the place, okay? You got a lot of places in the Old Testament. You've got the tabernacle, then you got the courtyard, and we're getting closer. Then you got the holy place, we're getting closer. Then you go past the veil into the, what am I going to say? Most holy place. And then in the most holy place, you got the ark. And then on the ark, the very center of where it's all going down, the place, the place, the place where a holy God and sinful humanity meet, you ready for this? Is at the mercy seat. It's the place of mercy. And Paul just called Jesus the mercy seat. Jesus is the place where people who have fallen short of the glory of God, both in performance and in perception, Jesus is the place where we meet with a holy God. We don't go to a tabernacle anymore. We don't bring our lambs anymore because the Lamb of God is the place of mercy. Woo! God in Jesus' death has definitively addressed the problem of human sin. Can somebody say amen? God knows about your junk. He knows about your failures. He knows about your weaknesses. He knows about your personal uh, temptations and inclinations. 
And he has dealt, in fact, his shoulders are infinitely broad. I won't go into this right now, but maybe I will go into it. However many human beings there have been, let's just use a number, 20 billion, it's not that high, but let's just say 20 billion human beings there have been. And let's say that every human being had committed a billion sins. It's not that high either, but let's just say, well, 20 billion times a billion is a gigantic number, but it's a finite number. Whatever that number is, it cannot exhaust the infinitely broad shoulders of the one true God. So you know what this tells you? This tells you that God not only has a future carved out for you, God not only has a present carved out for you, when you put your faith, when you put your trust, when you put your belief in the faithfulness of Jesus, God has a new history carved out for you. Don't you worry about your past because when you come to Jesus, and we'll get there in, in Romans chapter 5, when you come to Jesus, you are incorporated into Jesus such that you have not only a new present and a new future, you get a new history. You. God has dealt with, you say, oh man, I sinned again. Yeah, God knows. Come to Jesus. Come, we'll get it. We got time. We got time. We got time. We got time. We'll talk. We'll preach that later. Jesus is the mercy seat, the place where sinful humans, Jew and Gentile, and a holy God meet. Say amen if that point makes sense. Ah, it's just so mind-blowing. So we've already said that. We've quoted that. We've quoted that. Look at this. We're moving right along now. Verse, 20, verse 30, 26. To demonstrate at the present time. This is the same two words we started with. We spent quite a lot of time on but, but as a conjunction that indicates a change of direction. You know, da 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 all of humanity is sinful. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But now, we spent time on but, but we didn't spend a lot of time on now. And now is now, right now. And as if it wasn't clear enough, he makes it here. At the present time. Let me ask you a question, an historical question. Has Jesus already come? Yes, yeah, yes or no? Yes. Has Jesus already died on a cross? Yes. Is that an event of history? Okay, now this is incredible. This is a life-changing idea that you're about ready to be exposed to. Paul is going to make this incredible point that something happened in the past that radically defines and informs your present and your future starting right now. Not at some point in the future, nondescript time, and he finally gets your act together. At the present time, his righteousness, not your righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who trusts in, say this with me if you would, in the faithfulness of Jesus. This is the game-changing idea. The cross, God in human flesh hanging on a Roman instrument of torture. Watch this. This is a game-changer. The cross brings an end-of-history event, which is God's judgment on sin. The technical term here is eschatology. God, what God does is he reaches forward to the end of history, his judgment against sin. He plucks up his judgment against sin. Do you know what he does? He goes and plops it down right in the middle of human history with the cross. Do you know what this does? The cross brings an end of history event into the present, thus giving us assurance that our future is secure in Jesus. This is an incredible thing that God has done. Okay, so let's summarize. Let's see how we do. Here's my second chance at simplicity, my second attempt at simplicity. To summarize 3, 21 to 26, Jesus is the hero of the human plight of both vertical, this is Genesis 3 language, Genesis 3 idea, 
Vertical alienation, alienated from God. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And horizontal alienation. Jesus is the hero of the human plight. He wants to fix us not only vertically to reconnect us with himself, he wants to fix us horizontally to reconnect us with one another. Can somebody say amen? Oh, come on. You say, I need it shorter. I need to make it simpler for me. I need this easier. Okay. Jesus is the hero of the human plight. Yeah, yeah, we good? Okay, let's, let's make, okay, let's do it even easier. Jesus is the hero. Somebody says, David, I'm just struggling with that. I need that even easier. Okay, Jesus. Can we all understand that? See, he says, oh, there's a, I'm, I'm sensing a theme. I'm sensing a theme. I think, I think it's Jesus. Uh, this is not only the theme of Romans 3, 21 to 31. It's the theme of, what word do you think I might say right now? Scripture, the Bible. Very good. Now we're in 327. And this last little bit's pretty easy, actually. Paul says, after he's basically talked about how Jesus is the hero of the story, he says, well, where's the boasting then? He's like, it's excluded. You can't boast. What are you going to boast about? It's excluded by what Torah? This is kind of a clever play on words here. By a Torah of works? He says no, and he here redefines Torah as a Torah of faith. He actually doesn't redefine it. He goes back and captures the initial intention of Torah. It's another story. Not going to get into that right now. Paul is walking a very important line here on Torah. He is showing us how to use the Old Testament correctly. And I'll just give you the short version. It's a story. Jesus is the hero. That's how you read the Old Testament. It's a story. It's actually a lot of stories that make up like puzzles of pieces of a puzzle. Yeah, a lot of different pieces of the puzzle, but they make up a composite picture, right? So all of those little S stories in the Old Testament, as well as the New, but especially the Old Testament, they're telling little stories. When you put it all together, you put the puzzle pieces together, it's telling one giant story that God's faithfulness is on display in Jesus the Messiah. God did what Adam didn't do. He did what Abraham and his descendants didn't do. He did what Israel didn't do. God himself did in the flesh what no human being did. A big part of using the Old Testament Scripture correctly is to always keep the story of Scripture in your mind. Can somebody say amen? Got to keep the story in your brain. We've already quoted 321, but now the righteousness of God apart from Torah is revealed. This is, I'm just quoting this here again just to remind yourself that Paul is teaching us how to not misuse Scripture. People misuse Scripture even today. I see it. It's embarrassing to me. I'm actually in a text conversation with my good friend Ty Gibson and another dear brother, Tiago, and, and we've just been bouncing ideas off of one another, and, and we're just all feeling the woe within and without, inside and outside of our own personal denomination of people's just lack of familiarity with Scripture. And again, I, I don't want to sound like I'm being condescending here. I don't need, you don't need to become a theologian. Uh, there's no requirement for you to become a theologian. But Lord have mercy, make some space in your life for Scripture such that if a preacher were to say something, you would at least know that he was saying something that was wrong. Because if not, you'll just be carried away by charisma. Right? That's not what you want. There are speakers more capable and more adept and more charismatic than me who may not have the goodwill and the sincerity that I say by the grace of God I have. And so if you're moved by charisma and you're moved by eloquence, 
You need to know the scripture well enough to know if somebody's saying something that doesn't quite line up. How many of us here have had the experience? I'll have you raise your hands. Had the experience of, of sitting and listening and thinking, that doesn't sound quite right. Raise your hand. Hallelujah. Not hallelujah because somebody was saying something that didn't sound quite right, but that you could detect it. Are you with me? That you could detect it. So make room in your life. So Paul here is modeling this. He's building toward a very important pastoral point here. God does not have two families but one. Here we go. We're going to land this plane. So when he says, what about boasting? Hey, scene, that was for you. I haven't said that in a long time. I don't know where scene's at. The boasting of the possession of Torah and of doing the works of Torah, circumcision, etc., effectively created two families and fostered an us and them mentality. It created those that were in, the Gentile Christians, but there were those that were really in, the Jewish Christians. And Paul says, no, absolutely not. All are lost in the same way, to use the you know, normal language of Christian tradition. All are lost in the same way. They've fallen short of the glory of God, both in terms of performance and perception. And all are found in the same way by the faithfulness of Jesus. God doesn't have two families. He has just one family. Can somebody say amen? Therefore, we conclude that a man, a person, a human being is declared to be in the right on the basis of faith apart from the works or the deeds of Torah. And then this word, just take a look at this, verse 29. This is one of the great joys of Bible study. One of the great joys of Bible study is that the little words start to make sense. Right? If you just read Scripture carelessly, and, and this has turned into a bit of a professorial lecture about making time. I wasn't intending that, but the Spirit must be speaking today to somebody about this. But you'll know you're reading Scripture correctly when you don't have to ignore a for or a therefore or an if or an or, but when the ors and the ifs and the therefores just fall into place and you're like, yes, of course. These little connecting words are connecting big ideas. And so look at what he says here. Or, verse 29... Is he the God of the Jews only? Nah. Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. That little or there lets you know that we're on track with Paul's line of reasoning. He is driving at the idea that God doesn't have two families, one that's lost one way and one that's saved another way. And No, 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 no. God has one family. And then he does something clever here. And I'll, I'll, this will be the last little bit. Paul does something so clever, so controversial, that you could easily miss it. Verse 30, he says, Since there is one God who will declare in the right over the circumcised on the basis of faith and over the uncircumcised on the basis of faith, over Jew and Gentile. This is clever. Paul just said there is one God. Any Jew would immediately see what Paul has just done. He has just quoted the Shema. The Shema comes from the, 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 the Hebrew word here, from this right here. The most important, most significant, most sacred verse in the entire Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our Elohim, Yahweh is one. There is one God. This is, this is the most holy, most important, most sacred text in the entire Old Testament. The Shema Yisrael is the prayer of Israel it was this radical commitment to monotheism over and against polytheism in the ancient world. There is only one God. And Paul just did something so clever. So, in fact, I think I put it up here. In a masterful stroke of argument, 
Paul uses the very central text and idea of Torah, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, He is one, to powerfully argue for Gentile inclusion in God's one family. The point he makes is absolutely incredible. The point is, is if there's only one God, he has to be the God of Jews and Gentiles. Oh, it's a stroke of genius to take this central idea, this central passage, and flip it around and say, and by the way, there is only one God, so Gentiles have to be included under his dominion. They are a part of his creation. Incredible. So our final verse, 331. It's a verse of scripture that you might have heard before, and hopefully you'll hear it afresh now. Do we then make void Torah through this faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish Torah. Let me translate that in a way that many of you who are conditioned as Seventh-day Adventists to hear Ten Commandments, you've never understood this verse in your whole life, and you're going to understand it right now. This is not saying anything about the Ten Commandments specifically or particularly. What this is saying is, Paul is saying, wait a minute, have I just dismantled the whole Old Testament story about God's call of Israel? No, we have just established the Old Testament story. Jesus does not dismantle Torah and the story it tells. No, no, no. What are those next three words? He fulfills it. Jesus himself said exactly this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the Old Testament. Don't think that I came to destroy the story it was telling. I did not come to destroy that story, to turn that story over. I came to do what? What did he come to do? Fulfill it. And any Jew who would have been in Rome listening to Paul tell this new version of the story would have been like, man, this is incredible. Jesus is the hero of the story. His faithfulness unto death is the means by which, as number one, God has dealt with sin. Can somebody say amen? And he has established a global human family. Yeah? Jew and Gentile. People that look like you, think like you, act like you, believe like you, eat like you, and people who don't. Because there's only one God, so he's got to be the God of all of them. No wonder N.T. Wright says, final quotation here, Jesus' achievement is thus to have done what Israel should have done but failed to do. He has been the light of the world, the one through whom God's saving purpose has been revealed. Through him, God has at last dealt with the sin of the world, the purpose for which the covenant was originally made. And I cannot wait to talk about that when we are together next because any Jew that was there in Rome, and perhaps some of you today might be saying, okay, 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 I hear that. I like that. But what about that whole Abraham thing? What about that whole Israel thing? I mean, it seems like you're just lumping us all together in with one. But what about God's promise to Abraham, our father, our father's father? What about Abraham? And Paul's answer in chapter 4, which we're not going to do now, is what indeed? And the next time we are together... We will be in the whole of Romans chapter 4, and we will see Paul is going to take this idea of faith, this idea of pistis, faithfulness, to a whole nother level. And we're going to learn what it means to be truly and thoroughly and designedly human. What does it mean to be a human being? You might think you know. 
If it's based on Scripture, you do know. But there's a whole lot of human beings out there who aren't living as humans were designed and created and purposed to be living. We're going to go back to the Abrahamic story, which, as we will learn, is actually the story of Adam. And Jesus is the hero of both of these stories.